Hello, all you reinventors. This is Leslie James Seymour, and I am the founder of Cubby Club and of this podcast. And wow, this is a great conversation that you're going to want to hear. It's with Ellen Snee, S-N-E-E, who just wrote a book called Lead, How Women in Charge Can Claim Their Authority. And she's also opening up a women's development program up at Harvard. And she has spent her whole entire life learning what women can do despite the obstacles. And I love her story about being 12 years old and coming from a very Catholic family and having the insight one one day that she wanted to become a priest and telling her family this is what she wanted to do when she was 12. And the rest of her life evolved from there. And I'm not going to spoil the story, so I'm going to let you listen to it. But it's a wonderful story of a woman figuring out, okay, here are the obstacles and here I'm going to get around them and here's how I'm going to do it. And you're going to love her very inspirational story and how she goes on and on. And she's now in the midst of another reinvention. And I think the lesson for all of us here, when you look at someone like Ellen, is that maybe reinvention is not just one time, maybe the when it's maybe it's like you know opening your own business the first time. You end up opening a lot of businesses because once you get over that barrier of being afraid, you can do it again and again and again. Anytime that your heart's desire seems to be somewhere else, the fear is no longer there, or you know how to cope with it, or you know how to get over it. Anyway, I think you're gonna love. Um, listening to Ellen. And if you want to understand where women are today with leadership and where we, what obstacles we still face, especially after COVID, and especially after many, many women falling back into the home scene because they didn't have the childcare or the schooling to help them with their daily life, um, I think you're going to want to hear what Ellen has to say. So here is the conversation with Ellen Snee. Welcome, Ellen. So glad to have you here. Thank you. Delighted to spend some time with you. So I always love to go back and find out what's in someone's past that would make them interested in helping women. And you have a book to talk about um, and your long history of all kinds of things that you do. So let's start a little bit about... um, what did you start out doing when you were younger? Where'd you grow up and, and what did your parents do that influenced you in that direction? Or maybe they didn't, maybe you were a rebel. <laughs> a bit of that. I, I was the oldest of five of a very Irish, very Catholic family in New Jersey. And growing up, we had a lot of priests and nuns around our family. And when I was 12, One of our parish priests came for his Wednesday night hot dogs and card games. And as he was leaving, my father asked him to give us a blessing. And while he was doing that, I had this aha moment where I realized that was what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to be a priest. I wanted to be someone who could bring peace and joy to other people. So I stood up and I said, when I grow up, I'm going to be a priest. 
And the adults looked at each other and realized that I didn't know you couldn't be a priest if you were a girl. So long story short, they let me in on that fact. And that night I decided I was gonna figure out how to be a priest, whether it was as an ordained priest in the Catholic church or not. And that was the moment where the rebel in me, as you said, um, was born. And it was the moment when I realized I wanted to spend my life making a difference for women, advancing women and giving them the right to be what they wanted to be. Wow, that's incredible. And so just tell us a little bit about how you went about that and how long did you spend doing that? And then we can talk about your transition. So I was pretty rebellious in college or wild is a better word. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) When I told people I was becoming a nun, my roommate laughed so hard she fell off the couch. Mm. But I had met up with the Jesuits. I went to Fordham University, which is a Jesuit university. And they were men who were really dedicated to other people, lived in community, had a sense of a spiritual life. But I was becoming a nun at the time when everyone else was leaving the convent. So it took me a while, but I found this fabulous group of women, the religious of the Sacred Heart, who ran colleges and universities. And the first time I was with them, I knew this was what I wanted to do. This was the community. This was the group that I wanted to be a part of. And it took a while to get it all lined up, but I did. And then as I was a nun, I taught and I was going to go become a a seminary professor so I could change the Catholic church from inside out. Oh, (laughs) okay. Going back to the 12 year old. That's right. That's right. Lots of those steps. But I read a book um, by Carol Gilligan. The title mm-hmm. was In a Different Voice. Yep. And that changed my life because what she was talking about, about learning and understanding human experience through the lens of women's stories was exactly what I wanted to do. And so I eventually went to Harvard to work with her. And while I was there, I was studying women's development because I knew that how women talked about it and experienced it was different than what was in the literature, which was written by men for men. And I became very interested in the topic of leadership. I was in a almost cult-like class on leadership at the Kennedy School, and the guys were really having a hard time dealing with um, what the professor was saying about listening and what we now call emotional intelligence. And I was like, what's the big deal? I've seen women run organizations. I, lots of different women doing it in different ways. What, you know, what's the struggle? And if, if that's not the struggle for women, if women know how to be fabulous leaders, then maybe it's about the role of authority, that that's where they have some challenges. So that led me to do my dissertation on what it's like for a woman to be in a role of authority, and in particular, 
what happens when women are in authority over other women. And when I finished, there weren't very many jobs for me in 1994. Coaching had not emerged as an mm -hmm. um, industry. And so I thought, well, I'll just start my own company. And with absolutely no business or finance background, I launched this consulting practice that grew and grew and grew every year. We ended up having a roster of the top Fortune 500 companies. And um, it was, was great. So you were executive coaching? So we went into companies. At that point, the term executive coach had not even come out yet. Um, right. I was working with senior level women in places like Marriott and Avery and Schwab and Lotus and Warner Lambert and Goodyear. And we were doing several things. We worked with their senior women as one-on-one -on -one executive coaches. And like at Goodyear, we had six of their top women worldwide. And then we did programs for their up-and-coming women, their high potential, their mid-level mm -hmm. women. And then we also had a program for what I called new position when someone is just starting a new job because there's all kinds of data about how critical that time is and how vulnerable people are to um, not be as successful as they want. So we would come into these companies and offer these programs and it was just wildly successful. And then 9-11 came and companies took a hiatus in hiring uh, consultants because of the travel fears and uh, financial issues. Um, so that was when I moved to California to start over again. And I did that and met my husband and life was going along really well. And one of my clients made a comment about, oh, I wish I could afford to bring you in house. And I was like, what does that mean? And my husband said, well, go ask her. <laughs> right. And I did. And we worked it out. And so I came into uh, VMware, which is um, the huge tech company that only tech people know about because it's not consumer based. And I ran leadership development, executive coaching, organizational development, talent development globally, um, and then had a chance to launch the program of my dreams, which was, um, we called it VM Women, and it was designed to attract, retain, and advance women. But we did it differently than anybody else because I had 20 years of experience of what worked and, and didn't work in other companies. And so we, we really made it a program run by the executives. I had a council of the top men and women from each org, and they were accountable to the CEO. And within three years, we had these uh, diversity and inclusion metrics attached to executive comp. Wow. So, when was this? This is really early. This would have been um, from 2010 to 15. Okay. All right. Not so early. Okay. You're in and, the middle of it. Yeah. And then um, VMware partnered with Stanford 
and gave um, became the got the naming rights for the Stanford VMware Women's Leadership Institute. So that was the thrill of a lifetime. Wow, incredible. And so now you're, are you spending most of your time writing your book? Or are you still consulting? And let's talk a little bit about the book, which is called Lead, How Women in Charge Claim Their Authority. And that's out. Can one buy that on Amazon? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. okay. You, can, you can write a review if you read it. Which okay. Is, <laughs> I've been told to make that ask. Okay. Um, so um, in 15, I stepped back because I had my husband was quite a bit older and his health was failing. And so while I was caregiving, I started writing the book and the book came out in September and the fall has been a blizzard of um, webinars and podcasts and interviews and talks and it's been glorious. And now I am in yet one more transition, I am moving to Massachusetts, back to home, um, to do an advanced leadership program at Harvard. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I'm very excited. I, I feel as though the book has everything I've learned in 20 years. And there are issues today that I really want to address, but we'll take some time and connecting with the right people. I have two burning issues. One is how do we, um, or how do I as a white woman who has had great privilege and has worked predominantly with other white women, how do I become a bridge builder to women of color? And how do we really make uh, uh, diversity and inclusion programs, not just about women, but about race and other identity differences? And the second thing is a really burning concern that the pandemic mm -hmm. could cost us 20 years yes. of progress. Yeah, it looks that way, doesn't it? it does. we were Push back to, I saw the number, it said 1957. Oh my God. Our participation in the workforce because of lack, you know, lack of childcare, lack of school, and the women are pushed. That's what I heard. Is yeah. that uh, the, no, the statistics keep me awake at night? Me so too. My goal is to go there, and um, it's a year long program, and you come up with a project. And I really want to address what can and what can we do to um, to change that to stop the exodus of women because we're losing it at both ends we're losing the senior women right who will work with the future you know who we've worked for 20 years to get to the c-suite and boards and we're losing all the women who have childcare issues right and so we don't have a pipeline and it's not getting the attention. And as committed as I am to diversity on race, we can't let our eyes, we can't take our eyes off the ball of getting women of all backgrounds into the C-suite. So that's my project for the year ahead. 
Just a small one. Just a small one. (laughs) (laughs) So you're moving back permanently? Is that because this will be a regular program or it's a one-year program or you're you're, you're changing coasts? You know, this relates to the topic of um, transitions. Um, Initially, I got information in February about the program. And I thought, oh, this is perfect. I can deal with these issues. I can figure out what's next. And then as I thought about it, I realized that moving back to Massachusetts really is going home. And at this stage in my life, uh, that's what's calling to me. My husband died the year before, the week before we locked down in COVID. Oh, no. I'm sorry um, about that. Yes. Well, I'm just so grateful that I was able to be with him Mm -hmm. um, a a week later, and it would have been horrific. Right. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I didn't even think about that, of course. So many people have suffered so greatly. Yes. So I'm moving back to do this program and will most likely stay in the Cambridge area. But I could see that this program could lead to work in Washington or in another country or, you know, I'm wide open to where this work leads me, but I will be a visitor returning to California, not um, a permanent resident. So let's talk a little bit about what the book says about women in charge and how they claim their authority. I mean, okay, the book, you know, was written before we saw all these people drop out of the the workforce, right? Because right. there was no way to predict that. Just makes the whole point worse. <laughs> so exactly. what are the ma- major issues still standing in the way um, of women like us? And what are the things that we can do? I'm totally, I don't know if I'm, sh- I'm sure you, you, you have addressed this, but I am currently coming more and more to the belief that the next step is, has got to be the men's revolution supporting this because we've, I, you know, I've spent my career running women's magazines, talking to women about this issue. We've come up with every possible way to arm women and set them up and get them (laughs) directed in the right way. But until the men understand that this is their issue too, can we get anywhere? So I would, I take a slightly, I, I, I agree, but the way I would frame that piece of male allyship mm-hmm. is I think of it in terms of systemic change for two reasons. I think the younger generations of men who are in their 40s or most 50s have seen their daughters born. You know, they they have been in the room when their daughter was born. And these men feel that their daughters should be able to do anything they want to do, which is different from generations. Correct. And as they move into positions of power, I have seen how that has influenced how they approach other women in the workplace. Once their daughter enters the workplace, they get it in a whole new way. So there's that piece at the individual relational level. 
But the only way it's going to change is by systemic change. And by that, I mean having rules and regulations about hiring. Are there diverse individuals on the hiring team? Are you demanding that in any pool of candidates you're interviewing for a job, there are diverse candidates? Are you ensuring that the process is equitable and fair and biases aren't slipping in? The same thing has to happen with the consideration of promotions. I have sat in, I remember sitting in one promotion discussion, um, kind of as you know, an HR observer, and there, there was a man and a woman both being considered for promotions. And they had similar personality profiles. They were incredibly smart and talented, and each of them had really serious relational issues. And the guy was discussed about, oh, but his potential to change the company and drive this and, and his relational skills, his management skills were completely overlooked. When she came up, it was all about, you know, people didn't like working with her because she was X, Y, and Z, but nothing about her brilliance and her accomplishments. And we need to have someone in the room listening for that and catching that. And companies just have to make systemic decisions. Like the decision to tie these results to comp, you know, you get someone's attention when you say, all right, if you can't change this for the better, you're not gonna get your very, very substantive bonus. That's when you get attention but it has to be systemic, not just at the relational. So that, that's where I spend my energy trying to talk about that. Having said that, Go ahead. let going. me stop there and then I'll move on to what I think individual women can do. Okay, keep going. So I think there are things that individual women can do. And it is true that we have run all kinds of programs and put all kinds of resources. But sometimes when I look back on what we've done in the last 20 years, we kind of think about it as what got the guys ahead. You know, so the guys had mentors because there were people who looked like them and they helped them advance. So we tried to provide mentors to women. I actually think a different approach is required. And it's starting from what I call the inside out. I would say that over the 20 years that I have coached incredibly talented senior women, when I have asked them, what is it you want? What do you want to do next? What does success look like in three years? I would say, you know, I'll be conservative and say, 88% don't know. It's really closer to 95. A woman who really has the answer to that in her bones, in her heart, is rare. And if you don't know what you want, if you don't know it with a passion, it's really hard to go for it. It's going to be hard to go for it even if you do know. But women have to start there. 
and really, really, really discern what it is that's calling them, that brings them joy, that they are attracted to. And that becomes the uh, touchstone for any kind of discernment about a particular opportunity. I think that's a common issue. And I see that. I see that. And that's kind of the purpose of Covey is that we hold that space. I would say generally people don't come into Covey because they know what they want to do next. Mm -hmm. They, they need to find that vision. They know where they are now is not the right thing, whether it's career, whether it's relationship, whether it's, you know, whatever, the, the whole sort of look of their life. And they have to figure out what's next. That's really hard. That is one of the harder questions. What are, can you give us at least like one or two steps that you've found that actually moves you towards answering that question? Because that's, that's kind of the, the big kahuna, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I, I, I really believe if you don't do that, you, you can move ahead, but you're not the kind of leader that is going to draw other people. You're not the kind of leader that most of us want to be. Um, I think there are a few things. The first is to cut out the distractions of everything else in your life. I think women don't know what they want because they are focused so much on what other people want and need, whether it's family or friends. I think at work, um, if, if, if we were, um, if we had video, you, you could see me put my hands around my eyes like the blinders on a horse. And women do that and look down. They look down at their work. They look down at their people. They look down at their family. And they blind themselves to attend to all of that. And what they need to do is turn their head out, turn around, look at their peers, their larger organization, and above all, look up and build relationships with the people senior in their organization. So the first thing is really to find a way. I always tell women that most women work 150%. They work and they work and they work and they're perfectionists and they deliver it all. Cut back, just cut back to 100% and use that third of your time and energy. Give that to figuring out what you want and where you're going. Because if you don't give the time, you're not going to be able to make the most of an experience like Covey. Um, I actually think that when people ask me, do I think we've made progress? I always say that one of the most important pieces of progress is groups like Covey, where women are now coming together and knowing that what they're experiencing, they're not alone, and they have a community of like-minded women to share hold is sacred and move forward. Wow. That's awesome. I just have to say that's beautiful. 
but well, that's it's true. Really true. It's for because for generations, I, I would say that isn't even ten years long. Right. There's been something about first. There there have been lots of attempts to have organizations locally. Like I belong to the International Women's Forum. I belong to How Women Lead in California. I belong to um, the Boston Club when I was in Boston. But it's complicated because it takes time to go to meetings. Once women figured out how to get together online, how to use technology to bring them together, it it has changed the landscape. And there are so many groups now for women at every level dealing with every issue. And it, it's only growing. So I that's what gives me great hope. Hmm. The men who have seen their daughters born, who will be in power, and the, the groups for women. So once you figure out what you want, and I can say more about um, a process I use around discernment. The second set is you can't do it alone. So you need to find a board of directors, your own personal board of directors, a group like Covey, and as many of those things as possible. But really having a small group who will speak truth to you as yes. processing something. They won't yes. just, yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll say, but what about? And I know you well, that you're really not going to like that. That is critical. And the guys have had that since they were kids on their sports teams. Yes. And that's the other thing. The women who were the first generation of successful leaders in authority always inevitably had team sports, debate teams, or something else where they were working, you know, working in community, because it's the team sports that teach you the skills. And guys have had that since childhood. And only in the last decade have women had that. Correct. And so we've got all that in place now, which is great. So talk a little bit very quickly, because we only have a few more minutes left, because I think discernment is interesting. And as, as I said, maybe we'll get you to come talk to Covey about that directly, but just for our, for our, our reinventors who are listening, what does that mean? And what are, what is the first step to that? So having been a Catholic nun, I spent the first 18 years after college, always trying to listen to what was God calling me to. After I left the convent, I realized it's the same dynamic, only it's my inner truth. What is my inner truth calling me to? And so a few quick examples, like this going to Harvard. I, you know, in January, I had no plans to move cross country. And I got this thing in the mail and my whole body reacted. There was something in it that it was the same way. I felt the same way I did when I read in a different voice many years ago, when I was asked to consider coming in full time. There's something that when we know, we know that we know. And so it's paying attention to what your body is telling you. What is bringing you joy 
and excitement. I mean, being in the throes of a move right now is a nightmare. Yes, I did that two years ago. It's horrible. It's horrible. It's horrible. Yeah, horrible. I keep saying, okay, in a month, I'm going to be there. In a month, I'm going to be, I can do anything to get right. there. Right. And so the first thing is really waiting till you find something. I'll give an example with a client. I was working with a woman who was the top legal advisor in a big company. And, you know, she was wildly successful. But she had reached a point where she knew she needed to do something different. And she was very attracted to all of the work going on on the environment. And so we talked it through and she kept coming back to this. And so I said, well, let's why don't you put together a proposal to the company and see if you can do it within the company? You know, first step, don't jump out until you tried it. She tried it and they weren't ready. Now, she could have stopped there and said, oh, you know, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. But we kept pushing and I kept encouraging her to listen to that pull, to listen to it. And she was scared to death to give up a good job, to go explore something new that she might not have come for. But when she did the analysis and saw that she had resources to carry her for a period of transition, I said, go, go spend time with the people who are the leaders in this group. And so suddenly she started being invited to these meetings and her joy and her excitement made it easy for her to say goodbye to her big job. And now she is just, she's a leader in her company and her country. Um, So it's about starting from inside out sharing it with people who will fan the flame. That's what it requires is fanning the flame of the desire to move forward. Yes. And then there's a process of how to weigh um, different options that I can get into another time. Right. Awesome. And that, that actually describes exactly what Covey does is we fan the flames of your Mm -hmm. desire. I would never put it that way, but that's, that's it. And you need a group that can do that for you. And nobody, you know, here was really strange, Ellen, is that when I first started Covey, I thought, well, it might be a little strange that women are going to get together with strangers and do this. I have no idea if this is going to work or not. And what we discovered, especially through COVID, is that actually getting together with strangers is the key to the magic. Because- they don't see you the way you were. They see you only as the way you present yourself now. They have no, they have no dog in the race to keep you from changing. It's no threat to them. Whereas absolutely in it, and that's the magic. That's what's so interesting. If you move yourself into a group that has a stake only in you moving forward, it's a very different animal. I also think that we as women are in a new epic um, where we come together with a commitment to support each other, to advocate for each other, to share resources, that we've hit a point where we're no longer only one or two, where um, there's a feeling there isn't enough to go around. Scarcity. uh, Yeah, the scarcity. Um, We are just in a new 
fabulous epic where women straight, you know, I, I kind of feel like, I don't think we're strangers. We're just getting to know each other in a new way because we're so united in our commitment to um, make life and the world better for women that it, it's really easy to connect. With that, Ellen, I'm going to uh, give you my last question, which is where can people find you? They can find your book at Amazon. Where can they find you? Do you have social media or a website? I have all kinds of social media. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, but the easiest way is all of it is on our new amazing website, www.ellensnee.com. E-L-L-E-N-S-N-E-E. Nice, easy name that nobody else has. <laughs> That's a good one. I like yeah, that. Yeah, the book is there, our webinars, Great. the blog, more than Great. you could ever want. All right. And I'm going to drag you back for Q1 of 22 to come teach us about discernment. I think I that would, would be a great, that. a great hour for that. the for the Covey group. Ellen, thank you so much for all you do for women and thank you for sharing and thank you for being part of our podcast today. Oh, there's nothing that gives me greater joy than being a part of a group like Covey. So I hope I can consider myself an honorary member. You are an honorary member. I just made you one. <laughs> thank you so all much. All right, take care. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ellen Snee. I think she's really inspirational. I mean, to go from nun to women's educator, uh, how many of us get to do that? That's pretty dramatic. Um, anyway, I hope that if you are interested in more reinvention, you will pop over to coveyclub.com and check out all the content we have about it. We have people like Ellen who write for us all the time about these transitions. We have essays, we have how-tos, we teach you a lot. You should also think about joining Covey Club because we do that. That is exactly what we do. We hold a space for you while you figure out what you're going to do next. And it's really magical and really inspirational when you feel stuck to be brought into a group of women who are willing to help you through that stage and who also can say, I've been there or I am there. And I, yes, I'm very successful, but I want more or I want something different or I'm in a phase in my life where I've been forced to see that I have to do something different. So I hope you'll pop over there, check us out. I hope you'll join Covey and subscribe to the podcast and also pass us along to anybody you know who needs some help with reinvention and again it doesn't have to be gigantic it could be you want to reinvent your health it could be you want to reinvent your skincare or it could be a bigger reinvention we're there for you no matter what it is so take care and see you next time